theology has no small amount of problem with hypocrisy. Um, there's there's the there's the words that we say to tell ourselves a story about what we are that seems pleasurable, and then there's the things that we do that actually are pleasurable. And if we feel judged because our actions and words don't align, then we can sort of trick ourselves into thinking it was some sort of temporary moral failing rather than a, a revelation of our deepest desires. So, um, yeah, so hypocrisy produces massive amounts of, of enjoyment, and we need to get better at, at locating and reading the counterintuitive sources of that enjoyment um, rather than just thinking, like, hey, you're a hypocrite. Like, you know, the moment you say that, like, you're, you're already in the trap. Hey, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Adam Narlock. And I'm John Williamson. We have a returning guest today. We do. So much fun. And this book is killer. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I, I love this so much. But before we talk about that, yeah. before we roll into our, our esteemed oh, our, that's right. our esteemed guest. He's more esteemed this time he than is. he was the he, first time. He is infinitely more esteemed this time <laughs> than he was last time. I uh, can't wait to, to talk about that a little bit. But we have a few housekeeping items. We've got to talk to you guys about. Yes. So for those of, of you following us, we got some, we got some stuff. We do. So, so we have some new t-shirt designs that just went up on the website. Oh, um, they're so sweet. There's the inverse logo by our boy, Joe Ernst. Joe Ernst. It's so good. He's amazing. Uh, he's based out of Tennessee. And so if you, um, if you find him, if you search for him, um, he's in our show notes, his, his, uh, what do they call it? The tag, whatever. Yeah, if your business needs lettering Twitter done, name. if you need some lettering done, if you need design, you got to hit up Joe Ernst, man. He's worth every penny. He's a May. He did my wife's uh, uh, rebranding for her business. salon. Yeah. And it is some of the coolest stuff I've ever seen. Oh, dude, it's incredible. So we've got some new designs up there, um, some, uh, some brand new ones up on our website. So if you go to www.vdconstructionist.com, you can find all those under shop. Uh, the other big thing we have going on, and we talked about it on the last episode, and we promised a survey, and the site that we were going to use fell through, unfortunately, technology. Uh, so what we're going to do instead is we are going to uh, conduct a pre-sale for tickets. So if you live in the Denver, Colorado area, yep. we're talking to you. Yep. We are coming to you. And so we're not quite sure when yet. We're not we're sure when giving yet. you a heads up that we are trying to plan it. So tell your friends. And just be on the lookout. We'll, we'll let you know. But this is just us kind of communicating with you that that is going to happen yes. soon. We will put out a social media blast. So if you haven't followed us already on social media, um, you can link to all that through our website as well. Uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. But we will definitely put out a social media blast when yes. the pre-sale is ready to go live. We'll have a link there. Um, the dates we're looking at at some point this spring uh, April, May, somewhere around there. Um, once we get a date finalized, we will let you guys know. And then from there, um, we, we need your help. So those of you that live in that area who want to be part of our street team, um, we're counting on you to really get the word out in the area uh, since we live in the middle of snowy, snowy Columbus, Ohio. That's right. So once that happens, um, tell your friends, anybody Spread who might word. be interested. Um, it'll be a very affordable ticket price. We're bringing a musician hopefully with us, and uh, it'll be a fun night for us to Super fun night of, hang of hanging out with some content and just uh, space for all of us to get to know each other, yeah. share our stories, and, and do what we do. And Columbus people, yeah. we'll be hitting you up first as a test run, so 
you guys will get the crappier version <laughs> where we're working through stuff. I'm just kidding. It'll, it'll be great. It'll be so much fun. <laughs> so Columbus people, that'll be that'll be happening before Denver. So if you're in the Columbus area, if you live in the in that radius, um, definitely look. Uh, Keep your eyes peeled for um, ticket sales for that as well. Yep, um, we'll be we'll be gearing up through Eventbrite, and uh, we'll be sending out the link for that as well. Um, but other than that, let's get to the guest. Oh my gosh! So we got Tad freaking Delay back, Doctor Doctor Tad Delay. Yeah, so earned that too. Wasn't a doctor before? No, he is a doctor now. And when we first aired our our first time around with with Tad Delay, I think a lot of people were just like. Holy heck, like who is, this is phenomenal stuff. Like what, what incredible perspectives, because let me just lay it out for you guys. If you're like, what, what exactly does Tad do? I, the best way I like to explain Dr. Tad DeLay's work is that he's less interested in the beliefs that we all say we have, and he's way more interested in how those beliefs actually function yeah. in reality. So not like what is the belief? Rather, he focuses his work on what does the belief do in peoples, in cultures, and that's why he talks about, you know, the unconscious in theology and politics. His book is called The Cynic and the Fool, The Unconscious in Theology Theology and Politics, and it's less about beliefs and more about how they function, and we get into some really, really fascinating conversations that are very practical Mm -hmm. as well as theoretical, like, at the same time. It's a really cool mashup of some really, really fun, nerdy stuff. Yeah, he's kind of this weird blend of like sociology, history, theology, uh, but it comes together in a really cool way, and you can see why he and Peter Rollins are really good friends. Oh my gosh, it's so good. Like when Pete says, you know, if you want to know what somebody believes, just look at what they do, right. you know? And that's the part where Tad comes in. Right. So you guys are going to love this one. Oh my gosh, it's so much fun. So without further ado, I think we're just going to get right to this episode. We are thrilled to reintroduce you <laughs> once again to the illustrious... Decorated <laughs> Dr. Tat Freaking Delay Spring My life is starting over again Will the trees grow The river flows And its water will wash away my Well, ladies and gentlemen, here we have the triumphant return of Tad Delay, now Dr. Tad Delay, to the Deconstructionist Podcast. Dr. Delay, thank you for being with us again. It's great to be back. I'm ex- I, am so, I am so excited to be back because I actually... Yeah, I, okay, so I think I somewhat naively assumed the first time that I was on your show that anybody who heard me on this had probably heard me somewhere else here and there, just you know, somewhere on the internet before. And I have met so many people who that I would like first exposure ever to hearing me talk was uh, listening to you guys. So um, that was true in LA. It's been like people that I met online, um, people here in Denver, uh, some of whom become friends. So. Uh, yeah, I'm really excited to be back. Well, that is insane Thanks, for us to hear. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. You've got, yeah, you've got a pretty good pulse. Yeah, so sweet. Well, all right, <laughs> ba- back at you, by the way, because yeah. uh, of all the emails and things that we get of like you know favorite episodes, and we do like little Facebook live events, or we're talking to people live, and we're like, you know, like who are some of your favorite episodes, dude? Your name comes up all the time. You know, you, you were blowing people's minds on that first episode, so. You know, you got some things cooking now, and a lot's happened since then. So it was we were overdue. All right, yeah, absolutely. Well, that's that's very kind of you to say. Thanks. Oh no, it's 
like being dead serious. Totally serious. Yeah. Well, very good. Yeah. Well, it's, it's great to be back. It's great to be talking to you guys. I had a great time the first time. So ready for round two. Heck well, yeah. since this is round two, we're going to refer anyone, uh, Anyone who's listening who has not heard your first episode, back to the first episode. So if you want a little background on, on Dr. DeLay, you can go back to the first one. Uh, but we're going to dive right in because this new book, uh, The Cynic and the Fool, The Unconscious in Theology and Politics, is um, honestly like Adam and I have been texting back and forth. It is an incredible book. It's, um, it's just really well written. It's very accessible um, for, for such like a, a heavy topic. Yes. Um, it's timely because um, it kind of ties in politics and religion. Um, so like, let's, let's start off with that. Let's, let's, let's build the foundation for people. What do you mean by the cynic and the fool? Cause that's the premise of the whole book. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I, and I want to, um, so part of the weird, uh, angle of this book is that it's something I wrote in 2015. It feels very much like it's all about 2017. So totally. Yes, it does. Uh, so yeah, so I was I was literally writing, you know, the examples that I'm pulling are things like like fake news stories and conspiracy theories, things that like weren't really on the public radar at the time, you know, like things like theories of populism when America hadn't had a genuine populist movement in decades, and um, yeah, I don't know, like there were so many different little elements that that feel very much like everyday life in 2017, um, and I was writing about the in 2015. And so it's, it's just, it's a bizarre experience to, I mean, and I'm, and I'm very glad for that, actually. I'm glad I'm not writing this book now because a lot of my diagnoses would have been wrong and shaded by particular biases of mine. Um, but yeah, but I wrote this book, I, you know, I, I wrote God is Unconscious and I got a lot of positive reception, but uh, it was too difficult, right? That, that was one thing that I heard over and over. It's just it's a bit too out of reach for people who are just kind of broaching into the into the terrain of philosophy and theology for the first time. So uh, to say nothing of psychoanalysis. So right. I so I thought you know so there was this one chapter called the knave and the fool, which was kind of the idea that um, when. Uh, you know that that different figures of different theological or political persuasions use truth claims in notably different ways, and we can kind of map those out and read um, how they oscillate and combine to produce uh, collectives uh, that use language in different ways or whatever. Anyways, long story short, uh, I got a lot of positive reception on that, so I thought, well, what if I took that chapter and kind of broke down the way that I understand psychoanalysis to speak to theology and politics just around that theme? So. Um, the, the cynic and the fool, I'm using the, the word cynic in, um, well, maybe, maybe I can back up and say it this way. Um, when someone lies to me, I have, uh, just something that's, that's, there's no way it's true. Um, I hear this and I have an immediate interpretive, uh, decision that I have to make, right? Is this person a fool who genuinely believes themselves, right? Like the honest fool that genuinely believes what they're saying, mm-hmm. Or instead, is this person a cynic, a nihilist, a manipulator, someone who knows exactly what the truth is? Uh, so in order to lie, you have to know what the truth is, right? Is this person the cynical manipulator who knows exactly what they're doing with their truth claim and simply doesn't care, is using their language as a means to an end, right? Um, so uh, so I, <laughs> so cynic or fool, right? Like, in, I, so, And I, I don't mean cynic in the sense of like skeptical. So there's several different meanings to the word cynic, right, in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
sin, it can be like skeptical, but there is this type of skepticism that says that, um, you know, I doubt everyone's values. Nobody has any true motives. Therefore, I should just act however I want to act for my own, like whatever ends I want to seek out. Right. Um, so that's, that's the sense in which we call like a politician cynical, right? It's not somebody who is like skeptical or in on the knowledge. It's somebody, if we call a politician cynical, it's because they don't care who they hurt, right? Their positions and words are just means to an end, right? And that end is not helping people, right? So, so I mean cynical in that sense, right? Mm. And in school, I don't mean, um, just like, it. I mean, somebody like I want a world where we could all be just kind of nice, egotistical fools, right? I, <laughs> like, I know exactly or, what you mean, <laughs> right? Like sort of this like idea of direct belief, um, and I um, that that's the world that I want to 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 see where we can sort of believe directly and not have to think through the the motives and deceptions that we're engaging with. Um, but we don't live in that world. So I decided to kind of word the book around that dynamic, right? Does this person know what they're saying and they're manipulating, or is this uh, honest uh, foolishness in that sense, right? Um, and I, so I wrote this book, and then I finished the rough draft I, literally one day before Donald Trump descends from his tower and declares his candidacy. Um, <laughs> You were sense. like, what? No, no, but ever since that's that's the subtext of every article that you read online, right? Like, is this something is this like, you know, kind of a blundering clown type, you know, situation, or is this sort of a trial balloon for a coup, or you know, is there manipulation going on or just uh stupidity, or is it like stupidity surrounded by manipulation and uh, what is, how does that, you know, interact with what we expect, uh, any sort of resistance to that to look like or whatever. Um, so yeah, so I feel like I, I wrote this book and I, again, I'm very glad that I did not write it during the campaign because, um, I did some edits here and there, but like it was basically done and I'm so glad because all my diagnoses would have been off and I would have been biased and, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But I feel <laughs> like I wrote this book that feels like it's, it's about t- 2017, right? <laughs> so, uh, so that, I mean, that's kind of the 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 basis of it. Um, yeah, and I just I wanted to take God is unconscious and take a lot of its themes and put it more accessibly. I was writing my dissertation around that same time, um, and I wanted to pour over a lot of the stuff so that more than just the three people on my committee would see it um, and put that more accessible format. So yeah, so that's 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 the book. That's um, sort of how the project came about. I think um, it, I so think it's. It so interesting. And there's so many things that we're going to dive into talking about here. Um, as you were kind of explaining the cynic and the fool, uh, I could be completely wrong. And even if I'm wrong, it'll make for a good conversation. But is is one way of kind of looking at the the cynic and the fool, almost so, you know, just coming through the holiday season, you know, by the time this episode airs, we'll, we'll have been through the mm-hmm. holiday season but there and back okay. again. And, you know, so it's almost like there's there's two ways of of like belief in Santa Claus, right? So mm-hmm. like there's the people that like genuinely like, believe in Santa Claus and it's like, oh, that's cute. Right? <laughs> and then there's the people like that use Santa Claus for like a capitalistic end or for like behavior modification. Right. Mm-hmm. And is that kind of like a really terrible example of no, no, no. <laughs> no I love that actually I, I use that example in class the other day um because I you know what I love about uh Santa Claus as a as a way to think about belief is of course this uh and this is not my original idea. This is this is something that's been said in the literature over and over, is that um Santa Claus is kind of like a, a 
proxy belief or in a sense. So it, when a child stops believing in Santa Claus, um, it's the parents that experience the anxiety, not the child. Like the child is like, eh. Uh, okay, great. You know, like I'm smart. Um, and then, but it's <laughs> right. the parents that feel like, oh my God, like right around the corner, so many other changes, like the holidays lose like a magical sense to it. Right. So, so um, true. so the, so yeah, true. right. So, the, so Santa Claus for the parent is instrumental, right? Like it's, it's something, it's something that they pretend to believe so that they can participate in this magical structure. And then when the child loses direct belief, the parent loses the ability to pretend to believe through proxy, right? Through the proxy of the child. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so I, I think that we get that all the time, right? Like, um, my, I mean, my students do the same thing to me, right? Like, when they, you know, they expect me to have all the answers and, like, you know, as long as I agree with them, then they can feel more secure in whatever they believe or whatever. Um, you know, so we, we find that, that type of, of need to, to believe through another all over the place, right? Oh, yeah. The, uh, yeah. the web delusion, Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, yeah. Don't break the circuit in the illusion, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah don't break that. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Oh, very cool, man. Yeah, so, I mean, does that get to what you're talking about? Or? Oh, yeah, a- abs- absolutely. I just thought that, like, for those that are you know wrestling with, uh, you know, what is it, what exactly does that cynic and that fool thing mean? It's like, you know, there's ideas that we use or, or just outright believe in. You're either you're either believing in the idea, just wholesale, not questioning it at all, and just big smile on your face, kind of, you know. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe a little bit of a dopey smile, but a, but a smile nonetheless. Sure. And, and yeah. then and then the people that will use a belief for control. So I that's what I got out of it when I read it, and I just wanted to make sure that I was tracking because I have to ask you more questions, and I didn't want to start from <laughs> a false premise. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I mean, and and the whole thing comes from just something very simple that Lacan just kind of uh, Jacques Lacan, the psychoanalyst that I study, threw into one seminar where he kind of says. You know, the left-wing figure, uh, the leader, wants to play this part of sort of a foolish, like, direct belief, right? Like, access to healthcare, livable wages, right? Like, you don't have to divine some sort of ulterior motives behind lots of these kind of simple propositions that might just make life better or whatever. Um, but then Lacan, and so this is, you know, Lacan's political bias or whatever. Um, uh, but you know, he says, you know, uh, on the other hand, a lot of times when you ask the, the right wing intellectual, do you know, do, do you really believe all the stuff that you're saying about like immigrants being the one and only source of all our troubles or whatever else, you know, what does the leader say? You know, don't insult my intelligence. Of course I don't believe this, right? Like this is what I'm paid to do. Right. right. Um, so, so there's kind of the, so, um, yeah, and I, I think it works a little bit different in an American context, of course, um, than so he's writing in like a French 1960s context, so it's a little bit different today. Um, but we we sort of intuitively understand that our leaders are using language in different ways like that, right? Like sometimes a position is a direct, honest belief. Sometimes it's just a means to an end. We can kind of negotiate some of the differences, but the problem becomes when we our interpretation is different than someone else's pol- interpretation of what that same figure is saying right um that's when we start to disagree yeah right absolutely yeah, yeah. um yeah. but yeah uh what, what else should we explore here oh man uh just you know diving right into you know some of the stuff that i started gleaning from the book that was just those moments where i just just put it down and probably text john something exclamatory <laughs> and uh I feel like I consumed way too much of your time for the last week or two. Oh no, it's great, man. No, ser- seriously, <laughs> okay. like it's quality uh, time. Our book club people, <laughs> okay. our book club people on Patreon are going to get a copy of this. I think we're going to do some, right. some tweet giveaways. Like this book needs to be read, and and let's get into a little bit about why. I think that one of the biggest concepts that um, I I think will 
continue to haunt me, and I mean in a good way, is this, this first point you make, which obviously is because you're building, it becomes a, a very important thing throughout the book. But you say, um, it's a mistake to think of ourselves as people that desire to know. It'd, mm-hmm. be, it'd be far truer to stop the sentence early, you say, and just say, we are subjects who desire. When you started unpacking that, I was like, holy crap. <laughs> so could you yeah, talk about the yeah. difference between because we think that we are people that desire to know oh i want to know the truth i want to know i want to know i want to know this i desire to know do you yeah yeah you know well and you know, yeah no no i mean i think that that that's actually one of the the claims that if you don't follow me on then the rest of the book just doesn't work actually i think it's one of the more important things and i, I take it from this psychoanalytic theorist named todd mcgowan um at least partly inspired by him on that um we're not subjects who desire to know we are subjects who desire full stop um that desire occasionally attaches to knowledge but it attaches to knowledge when knowledge can provide some sort of other pleasure that's um can, you know, give us some sort of enjoyment or whatever. Um, so I, um, and I, and I do want to say that I actually, I mean, I don't mean this in, um, I don't say that we're not subjects who ever desire to know anything whatsoever, right? If I believe that I would not be a teacher at colleges and I would not write books. Right. Um, but I do, I, I think probably everybody listening has had the experience of confronting somebody with a truth and have that truth rebutted with meh, I don't really care, right? Like we've all had that experience, right? Where we we uh, you know deliver the truth to somebody who would rather believe something else, and it does not matter to what degree we have verified ourselves with facts or ratified what we what we were trying to say. Um, the truth doesn't hold water because the truth produces uh, uh, a lack of enjoyment, right? Um, so I one of my one of my examples for that is I launch into this discussion about uh, Martin Luther's situation. Do you remember this? Yeah, yes. yeah. The, yeah. yeah. So, I, I mean, I found the, the folk superstition and lore um, in the 16th century German period interesting for a long time, really just because I've done a lot of work around Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation. Uh, you know, which when we, uh, that's something worth talking about because we just passed the 500th anniversary of this world-changing event, and this world-changing scholar had a fascination with the asshole of Satan uh, that is hard to overstate. It's so um, the, funny. Yes, yeah, so this is uh, a world where so he grew, so Luther grows up in this copper mining village, and in a copper mining village, devils are everywhere. They're they're everywhere in 16th century Europe, but like if you were down in the mines. There's always a devil tricking you into seeing glittering ore when actually it's just a rock, right? Or if you have a sex dream at night, uh, you wake up convinced that you have had sex with a demon during the night, which is a little bit stressful, right? Um, <laughs> <little> so, bit. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, nobody wants that, right? So, no, no. Luther, even in his old age, Luther, and this is nothing unique to Luther, uh, a lot of people report seeing this all the time. This is just a very common folk superstition at the time, would say that if he looked out a window, he would be afraid that he would see the devil because anytime he saw the devil, the devil was exposing his ass to him. Yes. Uh, just show, yeah. So, this is uh, this is the kind of world that we're dealing with here, right? Um, so at one point, uh, after the Reformation had been going underway for some time, somebody's house burns down, and the only thing that is left standing is a picture of Martin Luther. 
Um, like it was just that wall that, that was unscathed by the fire. So what did they start doing? Well, everybody in the village started affixing pictures of Martin Luther to their walls, um, like all over the house on the assumption that pictures of Martin Luther couldn't burn. So it was like a type of preventative fire insurance, right? Um, now, um, if you had walked up to somebody <laughs> in 16th century Europe and said, did you know that factually – uh, you know, actually, that doesn't work, right? right? You know, what do they say? They say, "Of course, I know it doesn't work, right. right?" Like this is this just makes me feel better. Like stop, stop raining on my parade here, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so like, I that's that's just that's that's what how ritual works, right? Like it's a way to curtail, mitigate, control anxiety, right? Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, Tillich says this too. Um, yeah, so like it's 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 not that we're subjects who never desire knowledge whatsoever, but we desire some sort of stasis. We desire to mitigate anxiety. We re- desire to remain as ambiguous as possible, so we don't have to commit ourselves to a certain position. Um, and we want to 16- feel good. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, in 16th century Europe, it looked like posting Martin Luther's picture all around your house to keep it from burning down, uh, even though you knew that it didn't work, right? So yeah. Um, so, so that's the way human beings are. <laughs> so are you saying like, like, let me, I got to try to summarize this in a way that I think, okay, so our anxiety basically preempts our desire to really know what reality is. And our anxiety is, you know, instead inciting our, just our desire for satisfaction. Like we don't, we don't want the truth. We want to be satisfied. We want to feel good. Yeah. I think, I mean, I, it is, it is probably impossible to overstate how important I think the affect of anxiety is, mm-hmm. uh, for it, it does so many different things, right? Um, it generates so much behavior, so many defenses, so many diversions. Um, it gets channeled into ritual. Uh, the human condition is a very anxious condition. Um, and, uh, that is, that's, that's a problem for us, right? Like we don't want to feel anxious. And so if we can back away from whatever is causing that anxiety and be more ambiguous, indeterminate, ambivalent, whatever, um, and keep from having to go to that place where the, the void of anxiety is staring us down, um, that's what we do. So, yeah, uh, I think that religion and politics both happen to be ways that we channel uh, rituals to mitigate anxiety. Mm. John has a picture of Martin Luther hanging in our studio, just FYI. So I think we're safe. Well, at least, <laughs> at least four of the walls, or three of the walls, right? Yeah. So it's the one in the very middle of the house, though, so I feel like it's probably, structurally, it's probably the best way to go. Yeah, it's protecting this whole house. We're, we're good. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so if there's a fire, you just want to run to the center of the house. That's what you want to do. And by, All right. And by the way, ne- good. Ne- next time I see somebody knock on wood, I'm just going to be like, you know, that doesn't do anything, right? <laughs> right. Just to mess, with, just to mess with them. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, no, but that, but that isn't that the way that that uh, that ritual works, right? Like that's an obsessive, like ritualistic behavior, right? Um, any any type of person who has like some sort of like, you know, I have to arrange a chair in a room before I can leave for the day, or I have to knock on wood when something happens or whatever, you know, can't step on the crack or else somebody falls and breaks their back or whatever. Um, that's never like, that's not the type of thing that you can say, Hey, you know, that's not actually a thing, right? Uh, because we <laughs> intuitively understand that that's not the, that's not what that's doing for them. Right. Like it's, uh, we, it's, it, and it only works as long as nobody really presses it. You know, they don't believe it too much. You don't call them out on it or whatever else, but as long as it's kind of left ambiguous and it's just kind of a ritual that goes on repeat, then it works. Right. So, yeah. 
there, there's there this brings me uh to to one of my favorite quotes of the book um where you say when given the choice between the anxiety of unknowing and the certainty of defeat we tend to fear anxiety so much that we take pleasure in our guilt oh i was just like <laughs> oh my goodness because then on the next page you go into it a little bit deeper and you talk about um how hostility is used as a cover-up for the need to rethink talk about that because i think that it's so prevalent in specifically these two areas, uh, both religion and politics, anytime you question some somebody on on their beliefs, uh, you we see this on TV where, like we you know we we've mentioned this before on the podcast, like the red face, the shaking fist, you know, it's like immediately they go into anger mode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I'm so happy that you brought that up actually because there's something that there's there's this affective state that I did not talk about much in the book um, that I've started to spend a lot more time thinking about it, and that's shame. And I think thinking of the difference between guilt, anxiety, shame, and total indifference is perhaps one of the most important things that we can do when we're thinking about religion and politics. Um, so, like, what do I mean? Um, when you experience guilt, it's a guilt to the other, right? Um, when you experience anxiety, um, it's this sense of like, what does the other want of me? Like, what am I supposed to be doing with my life? Like, how am I supposed to fix this situation? Like, anxiety jumps to defend itself, whereas guilt, if you feel guilt, you know exactly what you have done. You know that you are in the wrong, and at the very least, you know that uh, you are at fault you don't have to wonder about whether or not you're at fault anymore. And so I think that a lot of people feel very like feel a sense of pleasure in feeling guilty precisely because at least if I feel guilty, I know that I'm in the wrong, right? Like I don't feel this anxious, like, does my life have meaning? Like, am I in the wrong or am I doing the right thing, et cetera, et cetera. Like guilt locates you somewhere. Um, and then similarly, shame Shame is like always the sense of being seen too much, right? Um, and this is, I think, perhaps a lot of our debates right now in society are sort of oscillating between guilt and shame, uh, sorry, guilt and anxiety. And then on the far end, you have shame and uh, um, indifference, right? So, uh, sorry, uh, this is probably getting a bit like obtuse, but I noticed right after the election, like a lot of my friends who were big uh, Trump supporters, for example, um, just shut down and stopped talking about politics altogether. And I thought that's that's an interesting time to shut down, like right after the election rights or right after like the inauguration or whatever. Um, because, um, and something different was slightly different was going on with my more liberal friends. Right. But when you feel shame about who you are or what you have done or something like that, you, your tendency is to shut down, right? Anxiety jumps to defend itself. Like here's an excuse for why I do the things I do or, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But when you feel shame, you feel seen too much and you just shut down and you don't want to defend yourself anymore. You just want to shrink and nobody sees what I have done, right? Um, mm-hmm. And on the other hand, when you feel indifferent, like I don't really care, like nothing matters, like I don't feel bad at all. You also don't defend yourself, right? <laughs> it's only it's only when you feel guilt and anxiety that you jump to defend yourself, right? So whether somebody is feeling absolute shame or complete blah, indifference, those manifest very often the exact same. And I think that that is a fascinating dynamic to what's going on in our culture right now. Uh, does that make sense? I, I know that's a bit that makes, perhaps 
a bit opaque, but if we complete sort of, sense to me, yeah, yeah, I think unless I just completely misunderstood. <laughs> no, no, no. I think, I, yeah. So, I, what, what came yeah. to mind with me, and I know you mentioned this in the book, but what came to mind with me is this incessant need from both um, like a fundamentalist Christian perspective all the way to like a fundamentalist atheist perspective to constantly mm-hmm. be giving these dramatic apologetics for their side. It's mm-hmm. this like incessant need to constantly disprove the other to justify themselves. And, uh, you know, being somebody that used to kind of get down on this thing in my early years, like, yeah, man, I know that that was, there was a lot of anxiety that produced my need to mm-hmm. like, why do I need to read the 12th book on why atheists are wrong? Why, why, <laughs> why did I, why did I need to do that? Because I was yeah. obviously experiencing a lot of anxiety. Like, what if I'm wrong? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's anxiety when you're jumping to defend. That's, that's, that's one operation that anxiety can take, right? Um, if you aren't jumping to defend, then it is either because you feel ashamed or like, you know, secretly convinced that you're, you've been devoting your life to a fiction and you just don't want to deal with it anymore. Um, or you've moved on and you're indifferent and, you know, nobody spends, hours in the bowels of the library, like trying to research apologetics because they feel completely secure and indifferent, right? Like you only do that if you know that there's a problem, right? So yeah, yeah, uh, I think that makes total sense. So walk with me on this new spring morning. I'll walk you till your fears are known. I'm a new baby weeping and the flower you're keeping. So you've got you've got this this uh, quote again at the at the beginning of the book that I thought was really interesting because I've I've witnessed this firsthand in a church where you talk about um, it, it starts out talking about the Apostle Paul hints we only start to learn after admitting we only see as if through a dim and darkened glass. Let's put mm-hmm. it this way. In every significant idea we ever believe, we are always at least partly wrong 100% of the time. Still, this, <laughs> still, you say this won't stop seekers, from certainty, uh, seekers of certainty from protesting. They will, um, they will say we have many things of which we can be certain and shouldn't ever doubt. That there are negotiable beliefs and non-negotiables as well. I have literally heard that in church where the, oh, the, yeah. the pastor yeah. stands oh, up yeah. there and says, all right, all, these, all this stuff is negotiable. We can, we can talk about that, but there are three, these three or four things that are absolutely like, you know, static. We can't, we, we don't touch those. Yep. And so, they're always very sort of ambiguously worded, yes. like lofty statements, right? Yes. They're like, you know, even if these were up for the debate, you couldn't disprove them because they're too vague. They're always too vague. Yep. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anytime there's a prohibition, that's, that's where you need to look, right? Um, if somebody says, don't look here, don't question this, like that's exactly where the problem is, right? Or it's at least covering over the problem, right? Um, so uh, yeah, um, I, I mean, I wrote that in because I, I, yeah, I grew up in that world and I, and I heard that language all the time. There's negotiables and non-negotiables and like who the hell ever decides what is negotiable and non-negotiable? Um, uh, you know, so I, I, I think that that's a, that's a really interesting tell um, that that pops up in communities, and it's not just something that that you know conservative evangelical Christians do either. Like any community is going to have its non-negotiable facets that you're not allowed to to transgress, right? 
Um, but the moment that you're prohibited from asking a certain question, you at the very least know that there's a problem there. Um, so, um, I, I, I always, I always want to listen to those, those prohibited question areas as something that that's worth considering a little more deeply. Um, so yeah. Todd, one of the things that I love about your work, and I'm just so happy that, uh, our mutual friend, Dr. Peter Rollins, you know, Mm -hmm. match made us all those years ago. (laughs) Um, one of the things that I love about how your work um, kind of gels with what we're trying to do here is um, you are, well, one of the things that we see as a problem in culture, and I know your book kind of deals with this on a much deeper level, but um, this thing that we've kind of been talking about, like belief by proxy, and this just not, not teaching people how to think, but just telling them what to think and, mm-hmm. cre- and creating an illusion, or you call it a fiction in your book that, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's just like, oh, here's what you're supposed to believe. Just, just do that. And there aren't enough people going out and saying, I'm not trying to tell you what to believe. In fact, that's the opposite of what I'm trying to do. I'm not, I'm not giving you a belief system at all. I'm trying to get you to think, just, just plain and simple. And you say something at the end of one of your early chapters, and you say, um, I'm, I desire to incite something. Questioning, doubting, or rethinking on occasion. You say the point of this book is not to chip away at falsehood, but instead to see our active desire for fictions. Mm. Dude. <laughs> Glad you like it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. you know, uh, we, we, we talk about implicit bias or, you know, um, some of the new psychology is calling it like motivated reasoning or things mm-hmm. like this. Talk about this. Like, you know, you're not, you're not trying to give us something to believe. You're, you're trying to do something else. And, and talk about this active desire for fiction that we all have. Yeah, I think that any, I mean, this is, this is something that I pick up from psychoanalysis. It's something that I try to employ as a college teacher. Um, I don't feel like my role is ever to tell someone what they need to think. Just like I don't feel like good teaching is giving like a big, long lecture list of facts, right? Like my students don't. If if I just like lecture for an hour and a half of of straight facts, like all the best facts in the world, right? Nobody's going to retain that. That's not important. Um, what's important is to give somebody just enough that they want to go a little bit further, right? Or to footnote something that might open a whole new course of like a new book or a a new thought for somebody. Um, I'm I'm not interested whatsoever in telling people what they need to think. I mean, I do think that there are certain ideas that need to be a aggressively combated. Uh, that's, you know, the, that's certainly the case. Um, but I don't feel like my role is to instruct someone in like what the truth must be for them. Um, so I, um, I, 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 I mean, this is also comes from like straight out of psychoanalysis, right? Like, or any psychotherapy, really. Um, if any of your listeners are a psychotherapist or have even gone to therapy, they will have had the experience of like the, the, the patient asking the analyst for what they should do, right? And mm-hmm. what is the job in that situation? It's not to tell them what to do, right? It's to ask them, why do you want me to tell you what to do, <laughs> right? And why do we do that, right? Um, why, why is that good practice? Well, it's good practice because 
um, if somebody is asking, like, what should I do in this situation? They're trying to export responsibility for thinking and processing to somebody else. Um, and that will be great for that particular question, maybe. It will not be great for every other question that pops up down the road, right? So um, I think that in the same way that psychoanalysis does this, in the same way that good pedagogy in the classroom is it works this way, um, trying to incite something, I think we need to think of theology as, as trying to do that as well. Mm. I think think of political theory as doing that as well, right? Like, how can we, how can we undermine what people are certain of, how, but without trying to give them all the answers at the same time, mm-hmm. right? Because it's partly wrong, right? Um, so, I mean, so that, to me, that's, that's the way that I see that type of role. Um, and it makes it easier, I guess, for me in a certain way, because I don't have to finally come down on a position that I'll doubtlessly rethink <laughs> six months down the road, right? So, yeah. yeah. I, I think that it's so empowering. And if, and if our listeners can get one thing out of, you know, anything that John would want for, for any of us listening to this podcast, it's like you can spend all your time memorizing whatever the great thinkers said. You can spend all your time reading all the books and, and basically just, you know, downloading whatever it is you think that whoever you admire, you know, believes or says about X, Y, or Z. Mm-hmm. Or you can do it. What do you think? <laughs> right, yeah. You know, what, okay, yeah, that's great that you admire that, but what do you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I'm trying to think through. I mean, I mean does, that, does that basic kind of structure that make sense then? Oh, yeah. That's what I'm saying. This is not, this is not too opaque? No, okay. not at all. This is great stuff. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that we're in a dangerous position um, with the sort of breakdown in truth in society is that, like, um, we uh, we are, you know, on one hand, some people will say, like, you know, we're, we're skeptical that there can be any sort of absolute truth whatsoever, right? So that's one perspective, but that's actually the, the danger of that is probably overblown. Um, on the other hand, we have people sort of push back, push back against the very notion of expertise and elite like thinkers and all that. And right. Like nobody can tell me what to do. Nobody can tell me what to think. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't care what people who study this full time think about this thing. I get to have whatever my opinion is or whatever. Right. So there are dangers. Like there is this kind of like epistemic crisis that we have. Like, do we trust news media or do we trust uh, college professors or, um, do I trust somebody who knows more about their fields than I could possibly ever know? Right. Um, so you know, I have like my niche areas of expertise and then there was the rest of the world that I know nothing about. Um, so, but we have this, this sense, uh, today that we like, we don't need any experts, right. We don't need to ask the question of like how to think or whatever. Um, so there's that sort of pushback against the very, notion of facticity and knowledge in the first place, Mm. right? And then there's this corresponding sort of inverted problem of begging somebody to give me my answers to me, like spoon them, feed them to me. Um, And they're both highly toxic Mm. and they're, but they're, but they're two sides of that, of that same coin. Like they're two poles of that same sphere. Right. Um, So uh, yeah, I mean, that's something I'm very concerned about, you know, as an educator uh, for sure. Yeah. Awesome. I think this flows really well into this section of the book where you talk about um, how there used to be miracle workers who traveled from village to village and who had, who had all the knowledge. And then as, you know, as as society grew um, and, and sciences were invented and things of that nature, um, it became, knowledge became more fragmented. 
there wasn't mm-hmm. a, a one all-knowing uh, individual. And, and so I love how you talk about how we, we've conjured, as a society, we've conjured this fiction of an all-knowing leader. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and you have this quote here that I thought was poignant, but like spot on, where you say, life is easier if we can simply pay a hypocrite for advice. Like <laughs> this, this fallacy of this all-knowing leader who has no doubts at all. I love it. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, in, in the last chapter book, I talk about how Martin Luther used, uh, the rise of the printing press and vernacular, um, in, in German. Right. Um, and one of the things I mentioned is that in the year 500, we were creating 12,000 books per century in Europe. Right. Um, and you know, now how many millions of books are, are produced a year, right? There was a time in our history when we literally just created 12,000 books in a whole century. And that was it, right? It was possible to know everything, right? But at some point, knowledge becomes fragmented. Uh, Nobody can no longer, you know, nobody can any longer know the entire thing, even in their sub-sub-discipline, right? Like, I can't know everything there is to know about philosophy, uh, psychoanalysis, theology, right? I definitely can't know everything there is to know about the humanities, right? Um, So uh, we have to trust, in a sense, um, and that, that is an uncomfortable position to be in, right? It was much simpler when we just had miracle workers and shamans and, um, you know, I'm the priest and I'm the only priest for 50 miles of this village, right? I'm the only person who knows anything about God or something like that, right? Life was easier at that point, right? You knew exactly who to trust. Um, uh, or, I mean, you, I guess you could still be skeptical of the whole thing, right? But if you were going to trust, you knew exactly who to do it and there was no other option and that was easier for us. So, um, so we live in a, yeah, a fragmented time at this point. Man, just paging through your book. There's like so many questions that I want to, but I, but I want to keep the, uh, I want to keep the flow kind of going here. So, so, um, hypocrisy. I think this is a really, really big thing to tease out because you've got this, you know, turn of phrase, you know, in, in your chapter title, hypocrisies are our highest virtue. Mm-hmm. Um, and you talk about the relationship between the conscious and the unconscious, you know, sure. about hypocrisy. And I don't want to lead you on this question because I probably am going to say it wrong. So can you just talk about the importance of hypocrisy and, and what that draws out about what's really going on in the way that like beliefs function? Yeah, I always think that it's interesting when people try to uh, call out hypocrisy. Like, I see a lot of this on, like, social media these days of, you know, calling out somebody's hypocrisy. Um, you know, this politician says this, but actually they do this other thing. Um, and it's always it's always interesting to me that it can seem so obviously hypocritical, but the person accusing the other of hypocrisy doesn't realize that that's the point, right? <laughs> like if, if you're, like you're, you're, you're already in the trap if you're, if you're playing that game, right? Like just accept that hypocrisy is actually kind of a, a thing that we derive a lot of pleasure for and we're perfectly fine with. Um, and I don't think that this affects everybody equally. So I, like, I really don't want to be like a, like a both siderism, uh, type like position on this. Right. Um, but I do think that when you, when you do one thing and say another, you get to please the id, the ego, and the superego at the same time, right? Like you get to do whatever you want at the level of the id. You get to think 
you've done whatever you want, like at the level of the ego. Um, and then the superego, the part of you that's sort of judgmental, like, why are you like that? You know, like, uh, you know, shouldn't you be ashamed of yourself? You get to sort of play both sides. Right. Mm. So when I, if I say one thing and do another, I get to have my enjoyment by, by doing right. But the saying lets me think, Oh, you know what? Maybe that was just a slip up or whatever. Right. Right. Uh, or, you know, so, I mean, just, you know, there's a million different ways that that could look right. Um, but you get to play like on both sides when you're, when you're acting as the hypocrite, Right. Um, so, uh, I think this, uh, plays out all over the place. I obviously like theology has no small amount of problem with hypocrisy. Um, there's, there's the, there's the words that we say to tell ourselves a story about what we are that seems pleasurable. And then there's the things that we do that actually are pleasurable, right? Yes. And if we feel judged because our actions and words don't align, then we can sort of trick ourselves into thinking it was some sort of temporary moral failing rather than a, a revelation of our deepest desires. So, um, yeah, so hypocrisy produces massive amounts of, of enjoyment, and we need to get better at, at locating and reading the counterintuitive sources of that enjoyment. Um, rather than just thinking like, Hey, you're a hypocrite. Like, you know, the moment you say that, like you're, you're already in the trap. So, uh, yeah. So I think that's an important thing for us to, to think through. Yeah. I, yeah. You know, applying this a little bit to, um, like the, the, you know, you were kind of going religious there a little bit and I, and I like what you said later in the chapter and I, I'd like to continue teasing this out just a little bit because you say orthodoxy is what we cling to whenever we fear thinking about the doctrine itself. Oh yeah. Oh. Yeah. Have you ever noticed that when somebody is like big on fidelity to some sort of orthodoxy, like how many times do you think this person has the most radical new ideas, right? <laughs> That's never the case, right? If you admire that person, it's because they have the uh, perhaps courage to stake their their flag in the ground at a particular point and not budge, right? Like there there might be something attractive about that certainty, but it's not because they're creative or, you know, coming up with something new in any sense, right? Um, you cling to orthodoxy when you don't have anything substantial to add to the doctrine itself, right? Um, so, um, yeah, I, that's, that's all over the place too. That's not just a theology thing. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, thank you. I mean, I, 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 I just, I find that to be true. So, so good. I, I would love for you to talk about, you, you have these, these two, um, these two words, that you discuss in the book and you differentiate uh, the two words. And I would love for you to talk about this, the, the word suppression and the word repression and the difference between those two terms. Ah, okay. Yes. Um, I'm trying to think. Okay. Yeah. So suppression and repression. So suppression is stamping out uh, a fire. Repression is putting the fire in another room. Oh, oh okay. no. So, so like the, the, um, so this, I think this comes up a lot recently when we're thinking through how societies protest, um, are the police that put down a protest, are they suppressing, uh, a protest or are they repressing the reasons for that protest? Right. If the police come down sufficiently hard, it might actually just kind of repress and then reveal like the same things that, uh, whatever the, the protest began with. Right. Um, so, um, uh, I don't think that we talked about Freud's grandson and the, the Fort Dog game. Yeah. Last time. No, I don't, not, not last time. It's in your book. Though, yeah, it's, it's in your book. Killer illustration. 
Yeah, just briefly. Like, so Freud explains repression by saying um, it's basically when you fixate on a certain representative, something that you need, um, and then at the same time you can't have that fixated item, but the drive for um, for pleasure continues. So the example he gives is he, his little adorable little grandson is in his crib one day, and he's cobbled together this little toy, this like cotton reel attached to a piece of string. This is like late 19th century uh, Germany, so their toys aren't that sophisticated. Right? <laughs> <laughs> with the string, says that you know his kid did like lots of little games like this all the time. Um, so he was standing in the crib and throwing the cotton reel and holding the you know the end of the string um, and then pulling it back, like throw, pull back, throw, pull back. And when he's throwing it, he's shouting fort, which is like German for like away. And then he's shouting da and pulling it back, and that's German for like uh, here or you know so you know away like gone back you know back and forth back and forth um, so forth and da so the infant is doing this and Freud notices okay he's only doing this when his mother uh, is out of the room okay so obviously there's a connection there um, so what's going on here well the infant has. You know, desires the mother because she symbolizes like the warmth, the nourishment, the comfort, the security, whatever else. But the infant, so that's the idealized fixation. But the infant also, when deprived of that idealized fixation, desires to um, still. It still has all the needs for security, right? Like it doesn't want to feel anxious that the mother is not there. Mm-hmm. So the infant comes up with this whole little game, right? Like it's not. It's not that the cotton reel is symbolizing the mother. Right, and that's probably important. That's at least somewhat important, right? It's not that the cotton reel is symbolizing the mother. The infant is perfectly well aware that the mother is not in a room, right? It's under no illusion that one has replaced by the other. Uh, the infant is playing the game specifically to repress, right? Because um, it has a drive for security and it has a fixated item that provides security. The mother, and when the mother is not there. It has to either feel the terror of the mother not being there, or it can distract itself and let that drive for security keep playing out, right? And so it distracts itself with this game, right? So that's repression, is when you um, have a drive for one thing and a drive for another thing, and you're deprived of one, you have to put it unconscious, out of awareness, right? Um, and let the the other drive continue, right? So it's whatever is unconscious that's in the driver's seat, right? So we're dealing with that all across society right now. Like, we don't want to have certain conversations, right? We want to think of ourselves as good people, but we also know that this conversation um, about race or about, um, um, uh, like, sexual harassment recently has become, like, like a, a key point, right? So, like, we want to think of ourselves as a good, moral, decent, evolved society, right? But at the same time, there are these elements that are popping up these conversations that say that we're not right so one way to keep thinking of yourself as good is to put whatever reminds you that you're not good out of awareness right and let that problem fester and you don't even keep an eye on it right like it just it just keeps festering right um so that's that's repression at a social level right so um um, which is very again, it's again, it's very different than suppression, right? Like when you're when you're when you're just talking about suppressing a problem, we can talk about just the police putting up a barricade and saying like the protest doesn't get to come here, right? Or uh, you know, uh, do you have some sort of disagreement in your community? Let's just agree to not talk about that thing or whatever. 
that's that's different than when you sort of consciously know that something is problematic and you choose to put it out of awareness in order to let the game persist. Because oh, blue skies are calming, but I know that it's hard. Um, so that I mean, so is that is that helpful, or is that hopefully that doesn't make it more unclear? No, that's great. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, I, we love this stuff, man. It's uh, okay. it, it's just really helpful to get this this kind of discussion in and around kind of what we do because uh, there's just a lot of a lot of the same things going on in the work that you explore and in what we're all experiencing. So I think one of the reasons that John and I, other than the fact that we're just nerds like this, <laughs> but one of the reasons we, we loved your book so much, it's because you know it it uses new language or that's language that's unfamiliar to us to talk about things that are very, very familiar to us from, <laughs> from an experiential level. Like, so, so reading your book and, and talking about like what we're talking about right now, like repre- like repressing things, uh, you talk about how whatever's repressed always returns as something else. Mm-hmm. I mean, who doesn't relate to that? Of course, <laughs> of course it does. Who's, who's ever been caught in the cycle of bad relationships? Oh yeah, sure. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think maybe I have one story in the in the fourth chapter that maybe kind of illustrates how this. Where uh, the chapter is called "Saints or Empty Signifiers." Yes. Which, I guess. I mean, I, that was a realization that hit me. I think before I even started like seminary was that like, of course, all these people who wrote these books and all these figures that we venerate, uh, of course, not all of them agreed with each other or with me, right? <laughs> like, of course, they all thought the world differently, right? Um, but uh, so we sort of project like saints are like an, like an empty canvas to sort of project whatever idealized version of yourself, like you want to think that they would agree with you or whatever. Um, and so I, I, I learned this story, like, so a week or two before I started seminary, I went to Washington, D.C. My best friend was interning at the Capitol at the time, and he um, he ended up providing me with this experience that stuck with me ever since. Um, I wanted to take a tour of the Capitol. My buddy couldn't do it, so he hooked me up with a, a friend of his that worked in the old congressional office building across the street. Um, and so, uh, so, so I meet up with this friend. He's about to take me on this tour. They have like this this tunnel that goes from the office building over to the Capitol, so the the congressmen don't have to cross the street and be visible to reporters or whatever. Um, have you ever been there? No. Do you know? You know the, okay. Yeah. So there's this little tunnel goes under the street from the congressional office building to the Capitol, so they can get to their votes. And there's even like a, a little trolley system, I guess. So in case you're like uh, too lazy to walk it, you can just take the trolley. <laughs> so of course we took the trolley, um, and it empties out in the bowels of the Capitol, um, where there's this little dark room that the Supreme Court met in before it had its own separate building down the street. Um, and you know, I'm standing there. And thinking about like all these good and absolutely horrific decisions also that were made in this room where the Supreme Court used to meet. And then my friend like, you know, gestures outside and he says, you know, here's our first statue on the trip. Uh, can you tell me who it is? Right. Um, and I'm thinking, no, I haven't seen this one before. Uh, you know, feeling pretty stupid, but no, like replaying the images. And he goes, you know, I, you've definitely seen this character before, like try a little harder. And you know, I'm thinking, and I just cannot place who is this statue? Like, who is this supposed to be? Um, and then of course, like, you know, I realize I'm in a tour standard gimmick and to be sure the only 
similarity between that statue and the George Washington in my textbooks was the total absence of 318 slaves, right? Um, There was this hunched-over figure, coarse, old, saggy, fat character, you know, and my buddy is kind of explaining um, you know, so one of the ways that art historians know that this is the oldest, uh, one, or at least one of the oldest uh, sculptures made of, of Washington is that it looks completely different than all the iconography that we get of all our founding father saints 10 years down the road, right? So, um, so when we don't know exactly when something was created, we can date it according to other depictions made with dates that we do know, like other works of art. Right. Um, so 10 years after Washington's death, his features get smoothed over. He's always gesturing into the air, like very elegantly. His like clothes are always tight. Right. Like they're they're kind of weird, but like they're, you know, they're, they're very like stylish for the time. Like there's often like a heavenly halo around his head. He's like eternally youthful as if he was always like like 35 or something like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Like he's. You know, so you know what I mean, right? Oh, like yeah. He always looks the exact same in every picture you've ever seen of him, right? Um, and that's not how he looked when uh, he was doing all his important work, right? Um, so this statue is like hunched, it's like coarse, it's like very ugly, um, and of course the Washington that we learn about um, was a slaveholder, and he uh, killed people, and like you know, there's there's lots of things that we don't like to think about, like we'd like to sort of repress out of existence, right? Um, and it's no surprise that we don't talk about the slaveholding in a nation that still had another 70 years or so to go before it would fight a war to end slaveholding, right? Um, so there's so that's that's one way that sort of misremembering a saint, uh, repressing certain knowledge that would fester and become a literal war uh, decades later, right? And that, that's one way to think about how that works. Um, so I got that lesson like right before I started seminary and, you know, learned about other men and women with halos around their heads that, that we also misremember. So that, that was kind of my introductory lesson in that. Yeah, man, these, these saints, I mean, so the chapter, you know, saints are empty signifiers, meaning we fill, we fill them up with meaning, right? Like we're we're the ones that make them work for us, you know? So, so Martin Luther King gets co-opted and, you know, Washington gets co-opted and everybody ends up getting Mm co-opted. You know, one of my favorite ones to think about is like St. Francis. Everybody loves to talk about how great St. Francis is now because it's, it's cool, but like, Dude is basically like exiled. He was almost a heretic. Oh yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. he was he was a total rogue, an alternate orthodoxy. Like alternate orthodoxy is basically a heresy, depending on what timeline you're looking at. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, I mean, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Martin Luther King, I think, is is the, probably the best example that we have. I wish I had all the numbers in front of me, but um, but because. In his era, we actually have statistical evidence of what people thought about them now, like compared to then, right? Um, and there was, I, I think, at the height of his popularity, he got close to around fifty percent support from Americans, right? Uh, so, so Martin Luther King was never a popular person. Like at the very, very height, there was one person or the other, and that was it. Um, and for so for for by and large for most of the time that he was working, the majority of Americans were very very certain that Martin Luther King was a bad person. Um, and today you have conservatives, liberal, left, black, white, like everybody alike venerates the guy, right? Um, and um, so I, I think it's interesting how that switch happens, right? Like um, if we if we had been born in a different time, there's a chance that we would not like the guy, right? There's a chance that we would have bought into the white supremacist lie around that, right? So 
Um, so we're always projecting onto saintly figures and trying to sort of rewrite them to be like us in the present, right? So is this kind of like, you know, back to what we were talking about, a, a little kind of a callback here, you know, we, we look for saints and, you know, we doctrines and gurus and authors and, you know, we called them proxies before. And John and I use that language a lot mm-hmm. on this podcast, not because we want somebody to give us the answers, but because we want somebody to satiate our anxiety that we might be wrong. Like, you know, we want somebody to just affirm us. Yes. Yeah. And, but I mean, and the interesting thing is that we don't even need it to be a person anymore, right? Like we, we have these, these all powerful algorithms that can give us exactly what we want, right? Like, like, you know, you pray to Google and Google gives you back like whatever you want, right? And it's you right? Um, so like, and I talk about this geolocal filter uh, bubble effect, right? Where Google, like we know, gives slightly different answers depending on where you live. Sometimes it can um, use uh, certain identifiers to discern your political ideology and gives you certain websites or others based on how you probably vote or whatever else. Um, so, uh, so we want to go into the internet to like search for truth and hopefully not find fake news. But at the same time, we kind of like the fake news. Like it's very presumptuous to think that we'd prefer to avoid fake news right um and we we want like either a person or even just a faceless algorithm to give us back exactly what we want right like i don't go onto google when i'm trying to fact check something i'm not going on to find out what the truth is i'm trying to find out that i'm not wrong right right you know if i need to find out that i'm wrong that's okay but i would prefer to find out that i'm right when i'm fact checking i'm not actually fact checking with a sort of a neutral face to it right so um but i want that algorithm to give me whatever i want to reflect like back to me, like what I am. Right. Like, think of like any time that you've had any kind of like ailment and you don't know what it is, but you kind of have it figured out and you go mm-hmm. on like every website until you find a diagnosis that agrees with, you <laughs> yeah. know, what? It's oh, like, yeah. I knew it was just hemorrhoids. I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need to go to the doctor now. <laughs> that sounds rough, man. <laughs> yeah. 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 Thanks guys. I'll, I'll appreciate the prayers. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, oh, yeah, that's what so I I, I want to I really want you to go into uh, I, I thought this this was really really fascinating this this section where you get into talking about uh, what you call indirect theory uh, or to the method of speaking at something versus speaking of something or mm-hmm. uh, and I've I've seen this in in some of um, some of our current favorite authors in, in the way that they are almost acting as a tour guide or, or facilitator of an idea versus trying to convince you of something. I would love for you to go into that a little bit. Yeah, I was. Um, that was my my first big theology religious studies conference that I did um, right when I started seminary. Um, I was, you know, riding up the escalator with a friend of mine to go see Catherine Keller, uh, who's an absolutely fantastic theologian, speak. Yes, you know, and I yes. kind of made an offhand comment about like I'm never quite sure exactly what she's meaning, or if she means anything literally or directly, or if she's always playing with you. Like I can never quite figure her out. You know, and my buddy says, you know, there are theologians who speak uh, of something, and theologians who speak at something, and one's not necessarily better than the other. But you have to know which one you're talking about, right? So like you have to know you have to know if it's that theopoetic style or more like doctrinaire, like progressional style. Um, and actually, uh, I, 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 you know, I appreciated that friend's insight, but actually think that it's only worth doing theology if you're speaking indirectly, right? I think theology is by its nature a very indirect discourse. Um, it's definitely talking about real things, but what it's talking about is never what it thinks it's talking about, right? It's talking about, um, but when we talk about 
theological trust in something. Um, uh, Marx is a great example of this, right? So Marx talks about the theological dimension of money, right? Um, that's a way of speaking indirectly by using the word theology to try to say something about the way that we look at money, right? Like as if it can, you know, provide security and satisfy our desires or something like that. Like money is the all-powerful, right? So so talking about money as a type of theology um, is a way to play with that word and speak indirectly at something that theology is always doing, right? Like theology is always investing trust. Um, it's investing um, a part of our ego into a symbol that can hopefully mitigate anxiety or, you know, deliver us into some sort of um, happiness or whatever else. But theology is always talking about actual human affects and conditions and pleasures and pains and goods and evils. Um, it's just not, it's just that theology is usually not talking about the exact same thing as its words indicate, right? Um, so, um, I don't does that make sense? Or am I sort of going off the rails here? No, 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 no. That's so much of what you're saying is just like, we, yeah, we could do whole episodes on this stuff. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it, it really is. And, you know, I would even argue that back to what you said a second ago, like the, the theologians that think they're speaking of something, they're really speaking at something. They just don't know it. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of times, you know, just because of the nature of the beast, if we're talking about the infinite, if we're talking about the ineffable, if we're talking about, you know, the beyond, how can you speak of it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we like um, I talk about this a, a little bit in Cynic and the Fool, and then a little bit more in God is Unconscious. But like the the whole, our, our best guess is that that religion comes largely out of um, death rituals and fertility rituals, right? Um, and it seems to go back longer than than Homo sapiens have been a distinct species. Like, so this stuff is really old; it's not going away. Um, but uh, what we find is early evidence of like mass graves or people being uh, early hominids being buried with their tools that might signify some sort of afterlife. So there was some sort of ritual going on very early, right? Um, and there was probably some sort of rudimentary theolo- theology around that ritual, right? Like the gods will deliver our um, you know, our friend into the skies, or he may return in the next life, or, you know, this fertility ritual will uh, bless the ground or whatever else, right? Like there's there's probably some theology, but whatever the theology is, it is speaking about a concrete human anxiety about death and like surviving another day and having crops and having a community that stays bound together and isn't wiped out very soon, right? Um, so it's a theology that says one thing, but it is actually talking about something very concrete. It's just not it's it's just not the case in early hominid religion that the gods are blessing the ground to create like fertile soil or or whatever else they thought their their rituals were doing, right? Like the same theology is speaking to um to an actual human condition, just not what it says it is. Yeah. It's not actually about the gods, it's about the angst, <laughs> right? So uh, yeah, I totally I totally see totally that. See that. Ah, it's just, ah, it's I, lo- just I, love I love this stuff. I love this All right. Stuff. All right. <laughs> Hang on. All right. What else we got? Yeah. You know, we run a little bit short on time, but um, yeah, yeah. less of a question about something specific. Well, it is specifically in the book, but it's more of a theme that I noticed throughout the book that I think is pretty important. And I'd love to just get your take on um, something underlying a lot of the things you talk about is power. Mm-hmm. So I, I could be wrong, but it it almost even seems like that there's even a dynamic in the continuum between the fool and the cynic mm-hmm. that is all about power. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, just even you know, wrapping up in the, in the end, 
um, a lot of the things that you talk about, um, it just, it, it all just comes back to power. It, it, it comes back to, you know, you talk about universities ser- serving power, um, you know, the, the politics and the religious things that are functioning and, you know, your whole idea about, you know, how, you know, how do beliefs function? Um, mm-hmm. It just, there's so much going on with, with power. And I would just love to, if you could tease that a little bit out in a way that uh, we could, you know, just get a sample of, of what you're talking about there. What's, what's going on with, with, with power and all these dynamics? Yeah, um, I hadn't thought about it quite that way, but I think that's a, actually a really good way to to put it. Yeah, I mean, power is is the site of abuse, and and I am very interested in dismantling power. Um, I don't always know how to do it, but um, but but power is at the at the heart of that relationship. Um, I say, you know, I say at the end. Um, you know, what I'm firmly convinced of is that the master is a cynic who desires to keep the fool in the dark. The nihilist master does not care whether you become a populist or a student or a financier or a scholar or an entrepreneur or a worker or religiously affiliated or a none of the above, a conservative or liberal, he only desires to keep you like uh, a fool, right? Um, The master desires to keep you orthodox in view, paranoid in outlook, nostalgic for a society that never existed, have nothing to do with it, right? Um, I I think that we need to think about the role of, of, um, Everything from the the public scholar to um, just the, the average layperson, like in whatever capacity you find yourself in, um, you have the options of replicating what the powerful master wants, or replicating something or creating something new that the master does not want. Right? Um, and uh, we that's in in you know we we're all capitalist in a sense today. Like we all live in global neoliberal capitalism. Um, in America, we live in a thoroughly Christianized society, whether we are Christian or not. Um, we have all kinds of power dynamics that enfold us into um, certain conditions, whether we whether we choose them or not. Um, and I think it's important for us, if we want to to have a voice in the world, um, and if we care about those who are being aggressively harmed and oppressed, it is incredibly important to listen to those who are the site of that oppression, who are who are under under the heel of the empire. Mm. Um, and it's it's incredibly important to think what does the the power want, right? Like what does the powerful want of me, and then figure out a way to do something that the powerful does not want, right? Um, so I, you know, I. I don't know that I will ever live up to my own ideals in that. I like to think that, um, you know, as a, as a teacher or as a book writer that I'm contributing something that those who desire to remove critical thoughts from public conversation, uh, that hopefully they disapprove of me, right? Um, hopefully humanities theory, philosophy, theology, hopefully that is the type of thing that I'm dedicating my life to, to help people think a little more critically at a time when funding universities and public education, right? Um, but that can look so many different ways, and I'm sure that that'll, that'll evolve over the course of my life. But yeah, I, I think it's incredibly important to think, like, who are the, who are the powerful interests in the world? And like, let's figure out how to, how to make them concerned and, and look out for those who are under their heel in the process, just, if, if that's not us ourselves. So good, Tad. And this is just, an, obviously, you know, I'm going to use you as a, as a, um, as, you know, a, you know, a, a, a saint, an empty saint, and fill you up with my own meaning right now. <laughs> but um, good luck. <laughs> but, but the thing that I notice, thing that I notice reading this, reading book, this and, book and listening to you talk here is um, 
that you're right in line with, you know, the minor prophet. You're right in line with, you know, the Christ himself. You know, it's, it's interesting to me, and I think I've said this on other episodes in the past, like one of the things that so stands out to me now that never stood out to me before about the person of Jesus that's depicted in history and in the Gospels is you mm-hmm. have three power elite groups around him. You have the Herodians that are, you know, the royal, you know, power mongers. Sure. You, you have the, the Romans, you know, the, the Caesar, um, you know, the, the power of the empire. And you have the Pharisees, the religious elite. Mm-hmm. And all three of them had to conspire to eliminate Jesus because he called into question all three in such a way that it was, you know, inescapable. And I think that that is, you know, actually something to do with the essence of what we're talking about in like what Rollins would call like the subversive core of Christianity. Like there's something, there's something really interesting that's in tune with what you see in the minor prophets and what you see in, in, in Jesus. And, you know, a lot, not calling you Jesus, Tad. I'm just saying like, (laughs) I'm just saying like that, that really stuck out to me that I'm like, I'm like, like, being suspicious of power and, and speaking truth to it is, you, you know, you're, you're in good company. Yeah. Well, I, I, I thank you for, for accepting me as your Lord and savior. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I, I think that actually, uh, I mean, there's, there's truth to that. And then like the, the sort of unfortunate underside is that what we might be seeing now with disaffiliation of millennials from religion um, and another of other factors like evangelical association with, um, you know, lining up with, with certain concerning political trends and stuff like that. I think what we might be seeing is that that project that, that begins with that pushback, like you say, against the power groups, um, what we might be coming to is this point where the whole project is just irredeemable. Um, and, uh, that's, that, that, that is something that, that time will tell, um, because, uh, you know, that, that's what happens when you, when you find the, the power and the wealth and everything else, uh, attractive, right? So uh, true. So, yeah. People are always like, so when did it all go bad, Adam? You know, when did it all go bad? And I'm just like, I don't know, but I think it has something to do with Constantine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah, it's always been there, right? Like the 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 trend for for absorbing and uh, power and domineering has has always been there, and it will not go away. Um, it's just a, a matter of of whether or not the whole project can be redeemed at this point. So, yep. right. Yeah, we'll Congratulations, see. Constantine, you ruined Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we're we're uh, we're definitely running short on time, but we want to get one okay. more one more question in. And okay. An easy one. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> okay. Anytime I say that, it means the opposite. Usually not. Those don't don't exist. (laughs) No. So I I really like, like, this is one question out of the the millions of questions I have left that, that, that we'll have to save for next time. Um, this is this is one question I definitely want to ask you because Which, and, and I will have another book out in a year year and a half or something so maybe at that point yeah perfect yes um, yeah I'll yeah. save these <laughs> <laughs> so so you have this you have this part um, and I think this is definitely an interesting idea to to, to discuss because I, I think a lot of what we deal with um, in kind of this backlash of um, asking questions and 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 kind of questioning authority especially within a religious context oh. is um, you know, we, we throw this word heresy around a lot, right? Like, oh, that's mm-hmm. heretical to say such a thing or to even question something like that. So you talk about this part in the book. You say, we needn't worry our ideas are heresies for all of our ideas are always a type of false consciousness, a perception of the world 
rooted in conditions of class, economy, and so many forces beyond our control or awareness. And I think mm-hmm. that is such a poignant uh, thing that you say there. Like we, we never take in consideration all these outside influences uh, when it comes to the things that we think and the things that we do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's sort of a combination of my religious studies work and uh, philosophical work uh, with regard to um, so it's like, it's like church history and a little bit of Marx <laughs> combined, right? But different classes have different sets of things that they know how to do. Um, different classes also have different influences shading what they desire and what they think and what they decide is important or not important, right? Um, so like there's, there's a type of, so all of our consciousnesses are always sort of, um, interjected false consciousnesses, right? That like we are told what to desire. I desire certain things because of where I was born and when I was born. Right. Um, and so, so that's like the false consciousness side. And then like, if you know anything about heresy studies, like all throughout time, like, you know how it works, right? Like we, we have this idea that, that there's like this true idea and then somebody comes up with the wrong idea and then they had a council discussion and exiled the wrong idea. And that's not ever how it worked, right? Um, What happened was that lots of different people were teaching lots of different things and then suddenly one day someone figures out, oh my God, we're all teaching different things. So let's get together and decide which one we're going to decide to run with in the future. And then we retroactively proclaim everything else to be a heresy all along. Right. That's, that's the way it actually works out. Right. So we get into debates about like, um, you know, what's the right thing to think about this or that? Well, like the truth is, is that, you know, one day everything you believe, uh, maybe not quite everything, but just about everything you believe one will one day be retroactively decided to be wrong or unethical or uh, ridiculous or like, why would you waste your time thinking about that? Right. Um, so, and I think that, um, I think we need to kind of keep that in mind, right. <laughs> For the time being, like when we place a lot of emphasis on certain ideas, um, how much does this really add life, right? Like, what is this idea doing? Um, where else could this idea be wrong? Right. Like let's, let's tear down those ideas. Yeah. Uh, I love it. So, yeah. so much. This is to so think about. fun. Yeah. yeah. No, and if yeah. anything, I just really <laughs> hope that this gave everybody a reason to get on Amazon right now. And, and grab the cynic and the fool. Guys, it's, I know we've dropped like a, like a bunch of quotes from this, but we didn't even get started. I mean, it's like 150 pages. It's easy to read. It's got little stories in between the chapters that really give you something to think about in a way that's not going to tell you what to think, but, but, you know, engage you in thinking itself. So, um, get freaking get this book. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I hope everyone enjoys it. Yeah. I'm on Amazon. Um, it, it's a little less expensive if you get it directly from a publisher, but uh, which that, is Cascade. Um, but yeah, and then you don't have to, you know, pay homage to the almighty algorithm at Amazon too. Definitely, but, definitely um, do that. Yeah, then. But, or order from your local bookstore. Local bookstores will not tell you they, they like they they never advertise this, but any local bookstore can order a book. Uh, support your local bookstore. Um, so, but yeah, uh, thanks so much for having me on. I had a good time. Oh, this was a blast, man. We could, we couldn't wait, man. We, we, you have a, uh, you have an open door. We have an open door policy for some of our favorite people. So you can, you are more than welcome to come back anytime you have something you want to, you've got a little a bee in your bonnet tab. We've got, we've got a place for you to vent. Uh, maybe, maybe we can do it sometime before the next book. We would, we would love that. That would be awesome. Adam and I are looking at our notebooks and we're like, well, we've, we've still got like five more pages of notes yet that we didn't even get to. So, <laughs> oh, oh, well. Thanks again, Tad. All right. All right. Well, have a good evening. Sweet blonde till the day it turned green. She said, L-I-F-E-G-O-E-S-O-N. You
got more than money and sense, my friend. You got heart, and you go in your own way. L I F E G O E S O N. What you don't have now will come back again. You got heart, and you go in your own way. He did it again. He did it again. He did it again. Oops. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I remember when we were talking to him last time and we were both so excited that when we heard that this book was going to be coming out. Yeah. And I remember the conversations that you and I both had, like when we started reading the book, The Cynic and the Fool, and we were both like, holy heck. Yeah. Oh my gosh. This is some really, really, really interesting, good stuff. And he's a really good writer. It's really well written. So well written. This is the accessible version of his, his prior book. Uh, for for the for the average layman, it's not super long, and like we were just saying before we started recording, um, I mean, you could almost highlight or underline every other sentence in this book. He just, it's really just well thought out. It is, um, and and the crazy thing is, there's there's some politics in there. He he kind of intertwines all sorts of topics into this book, but in a way that makes sense and it flows really well, right? And I think he predicted our political future. At the beginning, I was like, oh, my gosh. I mean, he, he kind of did. Yeah. He kind of did. I think he talks about that in the interview, too. I, I can't remember because we're recording this after the fact. But, uh, you know, he did. Yeah. Yeah. But I was like, uh, he wanted to be as completely unbiased as possible. So he, like, didn't. R- right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It's, it, it's so good. And there's so much that I like about what Tad does. And you mentioned politics. And I think a lot of times we all get a little bit nervous when you start to talk about, like, religion and politics and but here's the thing like all politics means you know coming from the word polis which just means city it means living together how do we live together and what affects how we live together more than what we believe or what we say we believe because that's kind of what tad deals in there's things we say we believe and then there's what we really believe in and what we really believe is revealed less by what we say and more by how what we actually believe is you know, compelling us to function in our, in our lives. Yeah. So psychoanalysis, the unconscious, all these kinds of things really come into play in what we quote unquote, you know, say we believe, you know, one quote that I remember loving from the book is when he says like, rather than choosing our beliefs, it seems that our beliefs often choose us. Yeah. And it's like, whoa, dude, Getting to really dig down and think about this stuff like really embodies kind of what you and I are about here with this whole concept of like deconstruction. Like let's understand this at multiple levels. Yeah. And I, I think I think when he gets into that that piece about um the, the fear of the fear of unknowing and the anxiety that comes with it, we always seem to choose anxiety and and kind of understanding the almost like the physical reaction to um getting to a place specifically within your your um spirituality where unknowing is a possibility and you start to feel those physical effects. It makes me think of some other guests we've had on who have talked about the fact that science literally backs that up. Oh yeah. Like, you know, uh, our, our bodies kick into this kind of fight or flight, that fight or flight mechanism kicks in. Um, and, and so it's like, you know, it kind of, kind of makes you think about that when you're having a conversation with somebody who is just so adamantly like just so adamant about what they believe that they're not willing to listen to anything that anyone else has to say, you know, it allows for a little more grace. I think you kind of, kind of think, well, okay, maybe I need to take a softer approach with this person. Right. 
Because then you realize there's a lot more to it than that. There's there's the psychology of it, and there's that literal literal physical reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it's super super interesting stuff. The book is incredible. Um, Even the title is so dense. Yeah, because this idea that he uses of the cynic and the fool. Um, for those of you, just to give you a little bit like what your appetite, you really need to get this book. I mean, you really really need to get this book. Uh, so the fool is somebody that is completely unaware. Yeah. Of what they believe. They're just completely unaware. They're just not really even interested. Um, they, you know, the fool just really believes everything that they, they themselves say. And they don't question any of it. Ever. Blissfully unaware. Well, just blissfully unaware. <laughs> yeah. And then the cynic is somebody that knows exactly what they're doing. And is calculating and manipulative and uses certain charged words and beliefs in order to control, steer, and manipulate other people around them. Yeah. And so when you think about that in and of itself, the contrast between those two types of characters, the completely unaware and the hyper-aware people, that's less about what you believe and more about how your belief is functioning in your life. Yeah. And, and either one can be equally da- as dangerous, you know? <laughs> I mean, we see this. We see this all around us. I mean, and I know Ted brings in politics a lot, but it's like, how can you not? We, I mean, within the last couple of years, especially within the United States, we've been forced to kind of take a look at, you know, um, how we ended up in the place that we currently are. You know, how how is it that you know Christians, specifically white evangelicals, um, profess to believe certain truths, um, and yet they seem to vote opposite or contrary to that, and it's. And it's not, and I'm not saying that uh, I'm not trying to call anyone out, but I'm just saying it's an interesting uh, sociological question to ask. It's like why why does that happen? Why does the historically moral majority mm. now seem to vote completely for people that couldn't care less about right. know, upholding morality, at least by popular view? Yeah, I mean that's a, that's a really interesting question. Not trying to cast judgment, that's just an interesting question. Yeah. Yeah, the, the the numbers are there. If you look at the statistics, it backs that up as fact. You know, so it's like I just find it fascinating. Yeah, and I think Doctor Delay, Doctor Delay does too. <laughs> Doctor Delay, that flows well. Doctor Delay. Speaking of which, we I, we mentioned Denver earlier. Tad teaches in Denver now. Oh, he's located my, in Denver. Oh my gosh! I know. So you might hopefully, if we can con him out, maybe you might see a Tad Delay sighting if you show up. So that's a little bonus treat for you. Oh, he better be there. <laughs> Listen. Listen, Doctor Delay. Yeah, we will have a glass. Better clear your something schedule. Something nice and brown for you. I think he. I think know. he drinks the brown spirits. I think he does. I believe he does. <laughs> and I understand. I do. As a partaker myself. I know. You, um, pro- you promised me some pappy a while back. I still haven't seen evidence. You haven't of this. been back over to my house. That's true. <laughs> I need to get over there. Come on, man. I'll Got some pappy for you. Just tell me when. <laughs> Let's do this. Oh man, we love you guys. Um, thank you for all of you that are choosing to support us on Patreon. Um, I know so many of you are waiting patiently for us to, you know, get our butts in gear and, and do some stuff with, uh, some of these conversations that we want to have with you. And those are going to happen. We're planning them out. We're trying to ha- figure out how we're going to work them into this year, but, uh, we've got a list checking it twice. Yeah. And, uh, that's going to be a whole lot of fun. So all of you that are supporting us three bucks and above that want a, um, a chance to be a part of those conversations. That's something that we're still working on, but, uh, thank you for your support. And everybody else, honestly, that's listening, talking about this, having these conversations, mm-hmm. um, making deconstruction a positive thing that uh, makes faith a, an explosive, fun, expressive adventure, 
uh, that we don't need to be afraid. Uh, that's just all good things. You guys, are, we're, we're all doing the work out there. Yeah. And the music this week. Oh, my gosh. Tell us about this sweet music. This is a band that I found a long time ago, and they're from uh, jolly old England, um, where a lot of my favorite bands happen to originate from, but um, it's a band called Noah and the Whale. Oh, yeah. And so if you, if you like the music, um, please, you know, like we, we try to plug them in the social media, say hi to them, tell them, tell them where you, you know, you heard them here on the Deconstructionist podcast. It helps us get future guests and uh, support their work, you know, buy their music, that sort of thing. Um, and if you want to, you can follow us, our playlist uh, that we update every episode on uh, Spotify. And I, I tried to start one on Apple Music. It's not quite as uh, user-friendly, <laughs> but Rats. definitely on Spotify. Um, just search for the Deconstructionist podcast. You'll see our playlist, and you can listen to all the previous guests we've had on. And we've got lots more coming. So, lots more. Plenty more. Yeah. Plenty more. That's all we got for now. Everybody, hope you enjoyed the episode with Tad DeLay. Hopefully, you're thinking about not so much what you believe, but then uh, taking a good look at how our beliefs all function together. It's really great. Topic of conversation, go grab the book, The Cynic and the Fool. Go check out Noah and the Whale. Thanks for supporting us. Thanks for listening. For now, we're your hosts. I'm Adam Narlock. And I'm John Williamson. Grace and peace, everybody. Yeah.